0: With all the complexities, obstacles, and frustrations facing medical providers today, you still have peers out there getting things done and moving medicine forward. Who are they, and how are they doing it? Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers throughout the full spectrum of healthcare. Here are your hosts, Keith Mencken and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. So what does a structural engineer, a perfume tester, a UN translator, a sound engineer for Led Zeppelin, an anesthesiologist, a cinematographer, and the guitar tech for Radiohead all have in common? They are all elite professionals who work quietly and meticulously behind the scenes in ways that are often both indispensable and invisible. Many of us have no idea who they are or what they do, unless, of course, something goes wrong. Today we're excited to welcome David Zweig. David is the author of The Invisibles. It's a deep dive exploration of the quiet professionals who are in many ways indispensable to our modern life. David is a familiar face to many of you. He's written for publications such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and the Harvard Business Review. We also have a link to his TED Talk in the show notes that's definitely worth checking out. The Invisibles in David's book share several key traits. An ambivalence toward recognition. They're just not interested in the spotlight. Meticulousness. They will not accept subpar work, even when no one is watching. Savoring of responsibility. They know how critical their job is, even if no one else does. Does any of this sound familiar? Does it sound like you? If so, you're not alone. We're going to explore peers outside of medicine, such as UN translators who can juggle multiple languages translating high-level government negotiations in real time. These people are under such intense cognitive load, they actually have to take structured breaks, just like air traffic controllers. We're gonna learn how invisibles such as these manage the stress and pressure of their jobs. Even with all the pressure and demands these professionals work under, many of them actually report the highest levels of professional satisfaction and the lowest levels of burnout. This is a great conversation and there's much more to explore in David's book in the show notes. With that said, let's get started. David, welcome to the show, we're so glad to have you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So David, we were talking about The Invisibles here, a book that came out just about two years ago. You used to be one of the invisibles you talked about. Uh, give us an idea of how you got into this, the idea, and what inspired you to do research in this area.
1: Yeah, um, I as you mentioned, yeah, I used to be what I call an invisible. For a number of years, I worked as a magazine fact checker. And, um, you know, the thing about that job is, uh, the joke I like to say is, you know, when's the last time you read a great magazine article and thought to yourself at the end, oh man, that was fact checked beautifully, <laughs> uh, you know. And the answer is never, of course. That um, and it was just this really strange thing where um, that the job of a fact checker kind of runs inverse to how most of us function, which is that the better I did my job, the more I disappeared. In fact, it was only if I made a mistake that anybody was aware of my work at all. So fact checkers, when they're perfect, they're basically invisible. Our whole job was just to make every to make our role invisible. No one wants to know about a fact checker. The only time you do is if something's gone horribly wrong. And um, but the weird thing was, I found the job uh, incredibly rewarding. I ultimately moved into writing, which is something that um, I kind of, which which is a common kind of um, trajectory for a lot of fact checkers. But for the the six seven odd years I was working as a fact checker. I really enjoyed the work. I like getting into research, and I just thought it was a strange thing to feel really rewarded, even though no one knew I was doing a good job. The end user, you know, the, the reader, um, for sure, and even in the editorial uh, offices, the fact checkers are kind of like low man on the totem pole. And um, so after I finished with that um, segwayed out of fact checking, it always stayed in my mind, and. Um, I just began wondering, you know, are there other professions that share this same kind of inverse relationship between work and recognition? It seemed so um, antithetical to our culture today where everybody seems to want attention for everything and, you know, where we're told that you need attention in order to feel good about yourself. You're told you need to gain recognition and build your profile or have a platform and all this stuff in order to be successful in business. And um, I just thought, you know, l- let me explore this more and see, are there other people like fact checkers um, who, um, who really are, run kind of the opposite to the way our, the cultural ethos is today? And I wrote an article for The Atlantic called, What Do Fact Checkers and Anesthesiologists Have in Common? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of launched it from there. And then from there, um, I wrote a book about it and have been uh, plugging away ever since.
0: Well, anesthesiologists, obviously, that brings us into our discussion here in the medical world. And I actually want to talk just a little bit about some of the other professions that you highlighted in the book, because there's actually some really interesting jobs that I, I had no idea some of these things even happen and didn't appreciate the word that goes into it. But let's talk about anesthesiologists for a moment, because just like you just said, they only get credit or focus when something goes wrong. And it can go wrong in a big way, and they have to work so hard uh, and be so diligent to, to make sure that doesn't happen. And when I was putting together some research for this, I was thinking about uh, something that happened earlier this year. There was a machine called Sedasis, and this was a device by a pretty large manu- uh, medical manufacturer in the U.S. And the idea here was to have a machine that would automate all of the clinical functions of either an anesthesiologist or a CRNA during surgery. and. It was a big deal. They put a lot of research and development into this. It was approved by the FDA, and they pulled it from the market earlier this year. Couldn't get it to sell much or at all. And from my experience talking with people and also from the news, I think a lot of this had to do with pushback from anesthesiologists, but also from people in the hospitals, other staff saying, we're just not quite comfortable putting, taking the human element out of something so important and turning it over to a machine. So David, just give us an idea, what did you learn about anesthesiologists and why did you decide to include them in the book? And then let's talk a little bit about how professionals, even like doctors who, who keep us asleep and alive during surgery, how they can be threatened by technology, cost cutting and changes, and how can they brand themselves in a way or, or get attention for what the work they do to protect themselves.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, those are all great questions, great points. First of all, um, I think the name Sedasis is hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's uh, good, good. Uh, whoever came up with that for the product, despite its uh, failure. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. So as I mentioned, you know, the very first profession that popped into my mind um, that kind of shared this kind of anti attention sort of. Uh, idea that fact checkers had were anesthesiologists, um, and they are indeed included in in the book. And, um, you know, as most people, you know, people who aren't in the field of medicine, they, you know, someone gets their gallbladder taken out, they'll probably never forget the name of the surgeon, but the anesthesiologist, they don't know who that person is, you know, five minutes after they're out of recovery, most likely, even though, um, anesthesiologists, you know, in essence are really running the show in in the or um as far as you know keeping the patient uh alive you know in some respects uh not to take away from the uh you know from the importance of the surgeon of course and everybody else but anesthesiologist's role is critical um and but yet anesthesiologists they're kind of like the field goal kicker of uh you know of the operating room they're either you know the expression the hero or the goat um although they're probably not even the hero generally it's um they're just like a fact checker. If everything goes perfectly, um, perhaps the other medical staff are are aware of their their um, skill. But if everything goes perfectly, the patient generally will never even think of the anesthesiologist. It's kind of just a given that they're going to make it out of there, you know, without some sort of uh, emergency with you know regarding anesthesia. All their thoughts are on the surgeon, and um, it's only if something goes horribly wrong. Um, whether there's a mistake or just something goes wrong that the anesthesiologist is ever really thought of at all by most patients. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing. And I spoke to a number of anesthesiologists kind of trying to figure out, you know, well, what makes these people tick? Why is it that someone will go into anesthesiology versus a variety of other um, specialties within medicine, or quite honestly, versus, you know, going into finance or whatever it may be. And I found that anesthesiologists um, tended to have certain traits, um, personality traits, or at least ones that exhibited themselves in a business environment, a work environment, and they tended to share those traits with all the other, quote, invisibles who I interviewed for the book who who in a really wide range of fields and professions.
0: What do you think? Well, if, let's take a step back here. Give us maybe two or three examples from your book of other professions where – all these aspects are true that there's so much that so much that we rely on them for, but we don't know. And just take us through maybe just two or three of those.
1: Yeah. One of the other people who I really, um, enjoyed meeting with was, um, a structural engineer, a guy named Dennis Poon, who's one of the top structural engineers for skyscrapers in the world. Um, you know, similarly, you know, in this kind of analogy, the architect is kind of like the surgeon. Everybody knows who the architect or, You know, there's even that uh, word called a star architect for these famous architects, and they make all their, but these, you know, grand structures, skyscrapers in particular, um, they, they would never exist without these structural engineers. And there's an extraordinary amount of responsibility on the engineer, of course, to make sure that this building is going to stand, um, whether it's from, uh, just from an engineering standpoint, and then taking into account you know seismic activity and wind and you know even terrorism. So there's an enormous amount of responsibility and complexity. but yet, again, to the average person in the public, they will never um, think of an engineer. They think of the architect if they think of it at all. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting analogy between them and you know, an anesthesiologist's role. Another person I met with was a wonderful, woman um, named Julia, who is a, um, an interpreter at the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, incredibly brilliant. She speaks many languages. Um, and these simultaneous interpreters, basically, without them, the UN would grind to a halt. I mean, they are there so one country can communicate with another. Um, and they are in the booth um, translating in their head in real time while one Person speaking in one language, they're translating it in their mind and then speaking it out kind of fluently while the person's still talking in another language. So a diplomat from somewhere else, um, you know, can understand what's going on and um, requires incredible skill, um, a lot of expertise and practice. And yet again, I mean, you'll never, ever think of The interpreter, you know, um, but yet without them, the UN literally would not even exist. It just couldn't work without these people. So um, there's just a whole bunch of really interesting people in the book, and I get into a lot of detail um, about their jobs just as if you like learning about kind of these sort of like secret people who make the world work, um, the book is a lot of fun for that. I just get into a lot of detail on all these different worlds about these people who sort of are running the show, but who the average person, um, almost never thinks of.
2: David, do you, do you think that the, um, uh, the type of personalities that you saw, do you think they gravitate into these uh, positions or do you think it's more of a point of their interest and then they, they settle into comfortably into the position they're in? For instance, you were a fact checker, but then you decided to take the next step and sort of move to the front of the camera, if you will, as, as an author. Um, do you think that many of these people choose to be the invisibles and want to stay in the invisible position?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, uh, from talking with these people in this really kind of wide range of fields, again, from anesthesiologist to, uh, you know, interpreter at the UN to a uh, um, structural engineer, I met up with a guy who is the lead guitar tech for the, the rock band Radiohead. Um, so And a guy who's a perfumer who creates these top um, selling fragrances by Calvin Klein or Tom Ford and stuff, but he's the behind the scenes guy. So really, I, I just want to you know emphasize how wide of a range of fields, but they all share this kind of um, penchant toward um, being behind the scenes but yet still having an incredibly important role and And what I found is I think general personality types do tend to gravitate toward the role where you're not you know um, in in front of the camera, as you said, so to speak. Um, with that said, it doesn't mean that you can't grow into that role. Um, And it's certainly at least the successful people in these fields. If you are in a somewhat more invisible role and you want to be successful, what I found is that you do have to really embrace that, that role and that identity. If you are seeking your sense of fulfillment by getting more attention from yourself, by and large, you probably won't really become very successful in any of those type of visible Roles, but here's something that's really interesting that, and there's a lot of research that bears this out. What I found is that people who are in highly visible roles as well, you know, whether you're talking about the surgeon um, in medicine or whatever else it may be, um, it could be a rock star, it could be a CEO of a corporation, that what's interesting is by and large, not all of them, of course. But many of them, and again, there's a lot of research that I quote in the book, whether it's from Wharton and places like that, what they found is that even people invisible in these more visible type roles, that if they have the mentality of the invisible workers, if what motivates them is doing great work and sort of the end result rather than being motivated by attention, Most of those people, that is a clear path towards success. Um, And it's pretty counterintuitive to kind of the message we're being given in the culture today, but that these people who, um, CEOs who have this more invisible kind of mindset, and I get into a lot of detail on what the different personality traits are and stuff. But when you match that up, their companies tend to outperform companies that are run by CEOs who are the more kind of like big personality guy who steps in the room and wants everyone's eyes on him. It doesn't mean that there aren't CEOs or others who are successful like that, but it's just that what people aren't aware of is that there is this alternate path towards success and being fulfilled, regardless of whether you're visible or not, and that this alternate path... Um, really has to do with just focusing on the work, on the product and the process, rather than on gaining attention for yourself. And surprisingly, um, and it's very heartening to know this, that ultimately really good work does generally get noticed by your peers and your colleagues.
2: Let, let me ask a technical question about the fact checker thing since I don't have experience with it and I'm trying to wrap my head around how that compares with the anesthesiologist I've worked with. Um, does the author know who the um, the fact checker uh, he's wor- or he or she is working with? Is there that kind of overlap so that they, they can have some conversation or is it just a process that happens totally invisible to the author?
1: No, no. Um- Almost without exception, the author and the fact checker work intimately together. The fact checker works with the author and the editor. Um, and, you know, depending on the, the particular article and depending on what the facts are and the stature of the writer versus the editor versus the fact checker depends on kind of who wins, um, if there are any, you know, um, disputes um, come about. But no, they, they work intimately together, and some writers are very generous and glad to have someone fact-check their work, and those are usually the ones who are really professional, and there are others who are kind of dismissive and not that interested. Um, so it just you know, depends on the, the character, but no, very much so, they, are, um, they work directly with each other.
2: Good. <clears throat> Good to know, because the, uh, the surgeons and the physicians in our listenership probably wouldn't have had that idea but it really is analogous to the way our interactions with anesthesiologists a lot uh, in that um, uh, a lot of times we don't even realize the anesthesiologist is there until a voice comes up and said you have to stop the surgery right now because we have to do this and then the good surgeons, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but some surgeons will say, um, okay, no, I understand. Let's hold off, make sure the patient's safe. And some surgeons will say, how dare you, you know, come into my room and, and try to boss me around. Now. Uh, I don't know if you got the sense in the OR, the anesthesiologist is the absolute king. I mean, that when the anesthesiologist says we have to stop the surgery, we stop the surgery. So I don't know if you came across that. I have the sense that's not true with fact checkers and and authorship. But let me know if that's if that's the case.
1: Um, yeah, I, I certainly did get that sense. And I and I point that out in the book that, yeah, you know, I think I use the phrase that they, quote, run the OR, essentially, um, that right. The surgeon's performing their, their work, but, um, but in the end it's the anesthesiologist who's, you know, keeping the, the patient alive. Um, and, um, yeah, the analogy does break down, um, ultimately at least to a fact checker in the sense that fact checkers are not generally the person who's going to, you know, has the final word, but I have to say at reputable publications, um, if the fact checker finds something that's that's wrong, I mean, it, we it, it was I say we because as a former fact checker, fact checkers really put the brakes on things. And you know, if there's something that's clearly wrong, it would have to be a pretty negligent um, editor who's going to you know disregard them. Um, you know, sometimes a fact checker can be a little overzealous, and <laughs> editors and writers want to massage something in there, even if it's not a hundred percent. But when something clearly is wrong, I mean, unless you're someone who really doesn't have respect for their craft, um, the editor is going to agree with them and say, yeah, let, let's change this. But um, it's interesting, you know, as you're describing the operating room um, environment, one of the um, chapters in my book, um, I wrote about a guy named Robert Elswit, who is a World-renowned, at least within his field, world-renowned cinematographer. He's worked on a whole bunch of like hugely successful movies, like the Born part of that Born um, franchise, mm-hmm. as well as the Mission Impossible franchise. But he's also done a lot of really um, high-end artistic films. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, the guy who made Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood, all these other um, Oscar-nominated films. Um, so the interesting thing about Robert Ellis, what I called his chapter. Um, the art of collaboration, um, because this guy is an artist in his own right. You know, cinematographers, they control basically the look and feel of a film. They are the most important person on a film after the director. And yet this guy, Robert elswit he's won an Academy Award. He's paid very handsomely for his work, highly in demand. And yet what's interesting about him is he always saw himself um, in service of the director's vision he so here's a guy who really could be much more of a big you know like have a big shot attitude but he was always very comfortable in saying ultimately you know what this is the director's film and even beyond the director um he always saw just the film itself that um that was the ultimate thing that mattered he wants the person when they're sitting on their couch or if you're in the movie theater that you know that magic kind of experience where the world sort of melts away and you're just kind of in the zone of watching a movie. That's all he cares about. He said, if you're calling attention to yourself in a way that doesn't make sense, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, And, you know, he was talking about cinematography and saying, like, he doesn't want the audience to be aware of fancy camera work. He just wants them to kind of be absorbed in the film. But that really can be applied to, I think, most of us in the work that we do, that if you're simply doing stuff to try to Gain attention, then then you're probably doing something wrong. But the interesting thing is about Elswit, and that I think is applicable to medicine, is that you know he became very successful um, again, like very well paid for his work. Um, but he got that way by being this really a master collaborator. Um, He, you know, in the way that an anesthesiologist might run the OR, he really runs the film set. Of course, the director (laughs) is the ultimate, you know, person at the top. But the director is dealing with all sorts of other things oftentimes on on a film set. And the the cinematographer is kind of like running most of the nuts and bolts of what you see um, going on in a film. And he was... I visited him him on one of the sets of his um, films that he was working on. I mean, and the guy was... Incredibly respectful to everyone, from the people at the top all the way down to the people, you know, getting food at craft services. And I and I think that says something about why he became successful. And I saw that with the guy Dennis Poon, who's this, um, who's the structural engineer. Again, this guy's worked on I think ten of the twenty tallest buildings in the world. He's again he's on the board of directors of a global engineering firm. Yet here's something about him. He never answered a question with I. He always answered with we. Wow. We as engineers do this, or just we as people working on a building. And so these traits you see again and again kind of cross across many different fields. And I think they're really applicable to medicine as well. When you think about even a surgeon who's kind of in the limelight, I have, I suspect that many of the top surgeons are the ones who are actually the most respectful of the other people in the OR and, you know, and and other anesthesiologists. And that word gets around, um, you know, in hospitals and other environments, the people who are really good to work with, because when you respect others, they help you shine in the end. It's not about hiding behind someone else or being meek. It's not about not taking credit for what you do, but it's really about understanding that when you have like, A really good collaborative environment. And again, you see this in like every single field I looked at. When you have this people who are master collaborators, they're the ones who really um, tend to be the stars in the end because they know how to get the best out of everyone.
2: Right. And Ultimately, it's about the goal. In, in the surgery, it's about making sure the patient is safe and the surgery is done as well as possible. In the film, it's about making the art. In the book, it's about creating a book that that you're proud of that is telling a true story. So It's not necessarily about the performance. It's about what you're creating.
1: Yeah, it's about the end result, of course. Right. This isn't to say that self-promoters haven't become successful in a whole range of fields and even in our <laughs> culture as a whole, you know, the sort of Kardashian principle, if you will. Some people are really good at, you know, just when you look at large organizations, some people are really good at kind of the politics of a big organization and they're really good at kind of just failing upward, so to speak, and know how to maneuver um, within, you know, a large structure. Some people are good at that and that that's great for them. But what I talk about in the book um, and that, you know, so many people who reached out to me, you know, after having read the book is that, I sort of I offer this alternate path toward becoming successful that I think a lot of people don't realize exists, that you be, you can become really um, at the top of your field, whatever it is, with, um, without um, needing to promote yourself um, in a way that we're told we need to.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good reminder, because when we look through all these different varying professions, there there is a, a common thread here. And. By doing good work and being very focused on your craft, you will eventually get recognized. And sometimes it doesn't seem that way along the path, but it, it ultimately does. Uh, one thing, though, with healthcare is that even though when you look at the team of the people who are taking care of the patient, for example, in the operating room, they all know each other's skill sets. They know each other's abilities. But the patient doesn't always know about this. And in many cases, there's so much nuance and complexity that goes into patient care it just cannot and is not appreciated by patients. And when we look at you know, the national healthcare debates and all the things that are going on, of course we don't wanna get too much into that, but there's a lot of people making decisions in healthcare that aren't actually in healthcare. And I think that's a big frustration for many people in our audience and many physicians around the country. How, David, these people, communicate to, to those who may not see all the effort that went into that surgery, all the education and training that went into a doctor's job when they're saying, oh, doctors get paid too much, and the healthcare co- just costs too much, and we just need to cut it down without actually speaking to these people. Um, what kind of parallels could you see in some of the other professions you've studied and not, you know, selfless promotion, but making sure that people understand your side of the story and and how much effort actually goes into what you do.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a really good point you make and, and it's hard, you know, we are a culture of attention, but I think it's about people having an understanding. And I think a lot of people do get it, you know, that there is an understanding of kind of what you get, what you pay for, you know, um, one of the, um, people in the book who I talked to as a graphic designer. And he talked with me about how, you know, it's funny, people, a client might ask for, we need a new um, logo for, for our company. And he might be able to come up with something in, in an hour that's 90% of, of the way there and show it to them. But some clients, they would rather you take three weeks and show them three different things and it's like, but sometimes you're you're paying for someone's expertise. You might pay an attorney a thousand dollars an hour, and maybe that person can get done what someone else who's you know asked for two fifty an hour might take five times as long. Um, and you know, and it's the same thing with medicine. I think unfortunately, some people probably don't appreciate the expertise and stuff that goes into it. You see a physician in an office for 20 minutes and you get a huge bill and you're like, why? I only saw them for 20 minutes. But you're, you're in the same way when you buy a book, you're not paying for the physical paper of the book. The reason a hardcover book, you know, costs $29 or whatever, it's not because the the paper costs $29. You're paying for the year or five years or whatever it is of research that the writer, did to, right. to make this book. Right. And same thing with med you know, same way with medicine. When I go to the doctor's office, if I'm in and out quickly, I'm happy. I don't feel, you know, like I've overpaid for it. I'm paying for their expertise, not necessarily for how long it takes them to do something. You're paying for the end result and for all the behind the scenes stuff. And you're right, it's a tough thing um to to make the average person kind of aware of all the behind the scenes stuff that goes into it. But all I can fall back on is from talking with people and meeting with them around the world for this book that ultimately really great work does get recognized. And that you know, the, the top people in all these fields, your work does get recognized. You don't have to be afraid that if you're doing, if you're a physician or in the medical field and you're doing excellent work, the end user, whether it's a patient or someone else, they'll, they'll know, they'll know ultimately.
0: Well, we're getting close to the time here, David. We want to respect your time. Maybe just a couple more questions and we'll finish up. Does that sound good? Sure. Sure. So let's look towards the future here. I mean, you talk about this culture of hyper self-promotion and everybody's on Twitter and Facebook and it's me, me, me. I like this. I like that. And this is especially true of young people today. And you link the two in the book. uh, Well, you linked this idea of promotion and putting yourself out there to an erosion of privacy. And we look now, there's a lot of hospitals, a lot of companies who are doing more surveillance of their own employees. There already are uh, cameras in many operating rooms, and there's debate about this in other hospitals that don't have mm. them. Mm. But looking at just the, the <coughs> putting people into metrics and measuring every little thing, and, and you know, give us an idea of some of your concerns that you brought up in the book about this, and everybody wants to find a way to measure the top performers, but are these tools really the best way to do that? And do they ac- accurately assess the the invisibles in the world? If that makes
1: sense. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times they don't. And you know, there is, I think this push toward, right, whether it's cameras or these other kind of really external metrics, and they're not necessarily accurate, as I'm sure many physicians can attest to, um, you know, when you look at a lot of these websites that, um, you know, patients can rate their doctor, um, you know, there's there's a participation bias. It's the people who are generally really pissed off. Those are the people who are more motivated to actually fill out, you know, a survey um, or someone who's exceptionally pleased. But if in the bell curve, if most of your patients are just they're happy, they're probably not motivated enough to fill out a survey and give you a, a ranking. So these rankings become very skewed. Um you know, and that's just kind of one example of these sort of using external metrics as a means of defining someone's success or their, you know, value that they're bringing.
2: the The curious thing is, the more metrics we have, uh, the more the uh, doctors become. Uh, less individuals and more just known by the numbers. So in a sense that they're actually taking the, uh, they're making everybody in the medical profession an invisible. And I'm not sure that's a good idea either. I think that you need somebody to step forward so the patient understands where the care is coming from, who they can turn to. You can't just have invisibles take care of somebody. You have to have somebody who is visible and is clearly the leader.
1: Very much so. And you know, I mean, the main thing is, you know, just kind of circling back to what i what I hope the the book offers to people, regardless of what field they work in, but then certainly so with medicine, is that in the end, it's really not even about how much you're visible or not visible. It's almost a, a red herring. It's really about what motivates you. Right. So when you're you know, for anybody who's listening, for people who are looking to excel and in, in their, field and also looking to find more personal fulfillment it's not about how much you're seen or not seen what what i found is that it's really about what motivates you these what psychologists call intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation extrinsic being things like money or attention but intrinsic Um, motivations and intrinsic values are the things that you aren't, aren't controlled by other people. And when that's your motivation, really doing great work and having a great end result, if that's what's truly motivating you rather than this external stuff, then those people generally, those are the ones who really are not only the most fulfilled, but actually often become the most successful. Again, it doesn't mean you can be meek and that you don't need to stand up for yourself. Um, periodically and don't need to you know, make a name for yourself in certain circumstances. Um, so I'm not saying that. You can't just expect to do good work and that alone to, to be enough. But if that's your primary motivation, just doing the good work, let the other stuff kind of, that will fall into place. Um, if you liken it to yourself as a company, right now, I think way too many of us are having, and if you imagine your marketing department is getting you know, 75% of your budget and your R&D department is getting 25%. And that's really um, the, the wrong ratio. It should be reversed. That your R&D, the work itself should be the vast majority of what you do. And just a small amount of your attention should be paid toward the marketing and promotion of yourself and your work. And I think that's the biggest misconception in our culture today. So many people are so Worried about making a name for themselves, whether it's online, getting having, you know, you need to have a Twitter account, you need to have a platform, or whether it's just within their work environment, always kind of like tooting their horn on everything um, that. Those people, by and large, don't generally become the ones who are the most successful, and they're certainly not the most fulfilled. If you're chasing that, you're never there. It's kind of that dangling carrot. It's really just the wrong way to live in in every respect, both personal and professional. And again, I just found it really heartening that the people who I interviewed, who are really at the top of their fields um, in a whole variety of different you know, walks of life and areas, these people became very successful by doing the opposite of what we're told we should be doing.
0: And not just successful, but deeply fulfilled in what they're doing. Because that's something that's right. uh, so many physicians today are struggling with burnout and doubts about their, the future of their own profession. But it is, it's really refreshing to see that so many people can still find deep satisfaction in what they do and take pride in how they do it. And you I, I encourage help. everybody to take a look at the book because there's just example after example of this. It's 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 just you did a great job, David. I, I really enjoyed reading it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I was just gonna say the um deserve I appreciate the, the uh, compliments about the book and the idea that, you know, these people um in the end it, it it is about what motivates you and it's about being challenged. And most people who work in medicine are smart people. They got into this. They had other choices. I mentioned this before when I was talking about the anesthesiologist. Why is it that those people went into anesthesiology versus surgery versus other stuff, knowing that anesthesiology, while it's maybe well-respected within the OR, that the patients generally don't think of them? And that... What these people, what really is rewarding for people also is having a challenge. So, if you're feeling burned out in whatever you're doing in the medical field, you need to find things that challenge you. Um, And there's a lot of research that shows, and from meeting with all the people who I interview in the book and all these different fields, show is that they're always challenging themselves. And that brings kind of a really deep, intrinsic reward. And obviously, you need money, you got to pay the bills. But if you're challenged every day, that forces you to engage with your work, and there's a sense of reward from that that really is unrivaled.
0: Good. And that echoes actually a recent survey that just came out from Medscape just about a week ago, showing that most physicians out there just want more time to actually do research and invest in their own profession, besides just doing all the administrative tasks mm. that that take up so much of their time. Exactly what you just said, and we're going to add that to the show notes as well. Well, just to finish things up, David. Where can uh, our audience learn more about you and learn about your book and and your work?
1: Um, I'm pretty easy to find DavidZweig.com. It's D-A-V-I-D-Z-W-E-I-G.com. The book is called Invisibles. The book has a website too. It's just Invisibles book. But um, yeah, I'm I'm easy to find online. Love when people reach out to me. Um, I've had a lot of professional organizations reach out to me, people at the... uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association, um, and the, the National Accounting uh, Associations. Um, so I, I'm always happy to hear from people in whatever professional field they're in um, and, and talk to them. I've done a lot of um, keynotes at various conferences. So I'm easy to find, and I, and I love talking about the value of invisible work and why it brings people such fulfillment as well as, um, surprisingly, success.
0: Well, we love hearing about it today. Um, thank you again, David, for joining us today and taking time from your schedule. We really enjoyed it. And, it's my uh, pleasure. And uh, maybe we'll talk you into coming back on again at some point. I know you probably have some other books you're, you're working on right now. I have no <laughs> doubt.
1: <laughs> for sure. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great talking with you.
0: Thanks again, Thanks, David. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum. Hope you all have a great afternoon or morning, whatever time you're listening to this. And we'll see you here next time. Take care.
1: Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.